Good evening and welcome everyone to the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, I'm Deputy Director here at the Institute and uh, from when Bronwyn leaves until the new director is appointed, I'll be honoured to be taking over as Interim Director. Um, thank you for joining us all here, uh, either in the room or online, uh, for Bronwyn's valedictory lecture as Director of the IFG. Bronwyn, of course, needs no introduction, joined the Institute after a long and distinguished career in journalism. I don't think at that point even she could have anticipated that she would see out two prime ministers, two elections, uh, probably the largest change in the UK's governance uh, in many decades, and a global pandemic. So it's been a, quite an interesting time in government, um, and therefore no surprise that Bronwyn has chosen as her theme for her lecture tonight, what's wrong with Britain's government? Bronwyn. Thank you very much. Hannah, thank you for that. He has a subtitle of what to do about it. I'm delighted to be here, except for the sadness, the obvious sadness, in this being my final talk at the Institute for Government, and I'm moving on after six years to be director of Chatham House in September. But I wanted to take this last chance as director to say what I make of the problems of the UK's government and what should be done to solve them. I might thank the Prime Minister at this point for making the speech easier. Not just for illustrating some of the things that are wrong, but for resigning in time to let me take a clear look back at this exceptionally turbulent period in British public life. Let me make one point at the start. One of the things wrong with British government in the past few years has been Boris Johnson. There is no code or constitution that can immediately stop someone who is prepared to lie and break the fundamental rules and conventions. The damage that causes is huge. The rules and constitution won in the end, but he illustrated how vulnerable they are. Had he chosen to try and call a general election appealing to voters over the head of his elected MPs, we could have been in a constitutional crisis, which people have rightly compared to the one that Trump caused in the US. He would have been defying the ability of Parliament to sack the Prime Minister if he loses MPs' confidence and angling for the presidential system that Jacob Rees-Mogg asserts that we essentially already have, where voters elect someone directly to the top job. What's more, Johnson says he got the big calls right. No, he didn't, despite the vaccine rollout. The cost of Brexit is now becoming evident. The OECD projects that the UK will have the lowest growth in the G20, a group that includes every EU country, that is, apart from Russia. Peace in Northern Ireland is strained. International allies mistrust Britain. It's a sign of the political culture that the new Education Secretary, Andrea Jenkins, raised her middle finger to the crowds outside Downing Street. We are going to have to wait to find out what other things she thinks Britain's children should learn. I'm going to talk about this culture and about those constitutional strains, but I'm also going to talk about the more ordinary reasons why government just doesn't work well and how that too strains the bond with British people. You hear the incredulity, the resignation, the anger about this all the time. Passports, driving licenses, tax returns and rebates, terrifying smart motorways where it takes too long to close a lane. If there's a positive point in, in this, and there is, it's that people are very exercised by the question of how they're governed. More, I feel, than six years ago. They're talking about it all the time, not just about Boris Johnson, but about mayors, about first ministers, about the monarchy. 
nor have they given up on government. We saw that in the pandemic. People are prepared to accept enormous intrusion, enormous requests by government into their lives. More than in many countries, people trusted the government when it exhorted them to get vaccinated. And a lot about British government does work well, I should also say at the start. There are terrific people in the civil service and in politics. It's a tough, tough line of work, which in my experience, most people enter out of desire to make other people's lives better. But many aspects of British government and its constitution do need urgent repair. And this is the IFG's mission, illustrated by our conference on civil service reform last week and two key papers that we put out that underpin that and really go to the heart of our work. I've picked out here four problems which seem to me at the heart of the problems people are really talking about now. And they degrade the culture of public life, undermine Britain's role in the world, and destroy the ability of any government to improve things. I'm going to start with cronyism and its pervasiveness in British government. Crony is almost a cosy word, making it sound as if it's just about being a bit too nice to your mates. In practice, it's almost indistinguishable from corruption. I'm talking about things like Robert Jenrick's rush to approve for Richard Desmond's development in Tower Hamlets, saving Desmond 45 million pounds in taxes, otherwise due to one of London's poorest boroughs. Two weeks later, Desmond gave 12,000 pounds to the Conservative Party. Johnson's appointment of Peter Cruddus to the House of Lords, followed three days later by Cruddus's donation of half a million pounds to the Conservative Party. He's given four million overall. Johnson's attempt to change parliamentary lobbying rules to save the career of Owen Paterson, whom the uh, Standards Commissioner found to have undertaken egregious paid lobbying for three companies. The awarding of PPE contracts, according to the National Audit Office, one of these brave watchdogs throwing itself at this kind of question. Those with political connections were directed to a VIP lane where their bids were 10 times more likely to be successful than those without such connections. How is this different from corruption? It's not obvious to me, nor to the rest of the world. It appears to be the simple trading of favors for cash. Johnson made this everyday life in number 10 for some of his time there, but he wasn't the first. The shadow of cash for honors still hangs over Tony Blair's premiership. David Cameron promised to clean up politics, but has been exposed to be lobbying former colleagues over Greensill. You could add to this the threat of corruption in local government, where since the almost casual abolition of the Audit Commission in 2010, councils can pick their own auditors. Occasionally, a case like Liverpool triggers formal charges, but given the financial pressures on local councils, the threat of more problems is rising. And these cases hurt Britain's reputation. It is delusional to think that they don't. Those in British government like to bask in imagined compliments for good government when that isn't what others always see. The current joke about Britain in Italy, a country which at least at the moment is rather well run under Prime Minister Mario Draghi, is that at least Berlusconi bought his own wallpaper. It isn't as if there aren't ethics panels and advisors. There are. There is the ministerial code, too. But there are no teeth to these, and none that can get purchase on the prime minister when he is the offender. We do need to correct that. I'll extend this point to my second one, which is about lying and bending the truth and the self-delusion to which these also lead. Again, Johnson took this to characteristic lengths, not just his lie about Chris Pincher, 
blasted open by Simon MacDonald, former permanent secretary of the Foreign Office, who also exposed a week of floundering, misleading statements from the Downing Street Press Office. You could add to that Johnson's repeated false statements about employment. In January this year, according to the excellent fact-checking organization Full Fact, he claimed for the fourth time that there were 420,000 420, more people in employment from before the pandemic, whereas including the self-employed, there were 600,000 fewer. And if I were to start on misclaims about Brexit, we, I could give the talk just on that. But again, Johnson was not the first of all Tony Blair's mistakes over Iraq. One of the most egregious was the sex dossier about Iraq's supposed weapons of mass destruction used to justify the invasion. And Gordon Brown did a lot to destroy confidence in spending claims from any government, winning a reputation for dressing up old money as new. But these things matter more now in an era of social media and given the assault on people's confidence from the world of alternative facts. It also leads more subtly, it seems to me, to self-delusion. And that is, I feel, one of the pernicious problems of British government. Delusions of grandeur, gra sorry, delusions of grandeur, certainly, about our place in the world, underpinned by a lack of understanding of the basis for other countries' success, such <coughs> as that of Germany or Japan. Delusions about our history. I saw officials in Iraq and Afghanistan too happy to court compliments for peacemaking in Northern Ireland and ignorant about historic defeats in Afghanistan. Delusions of intellect. It's one of the unspoken beliefs in the civil service that Britain is really, really good at policy making, just not so good at delivery. Actually, it often falls short at both. Politicians and civil servants both need to resist this. Civil servants have done their best much of the time. Their impartiality and the strength of that principle and that culture has really come through, as in that letter from Simon MacDonald. But there are no sanctions that can really enforce this if public and parliamentary opprobrium is not enough, which is why upholding a, a culture of truth-telling rests on everyone in public life. The two problems I've mentioned so far are real offences. The next is not. It's the lack of skill and knowledge of many officials and ministers, but it is one of the main reasons why things just don't work. There is a much greater recognition in the past decade, which the IFG has really championed, that modern government needs professional functions such as HR, digital standards, and finance. But there is still often a lack of the right skills and specialist knowledge in the civil service and among ministers. And that is mainly the result of the speed with which people move between jobs. These are bright people, very dedicated, but they are not in their jobs very long. There's a huge turnover of officials and ministers and prime ministers, and it leaves other countries incredulous. Modern government is complicated. It is impossible to master these subjects quickly. You still run into people in the civil service who passionately defend the principle of the bright generalist. And those qualities do have their place, but are often overrated. That culture can lead to improvisation and shallow answers and does nothing to combat magical thinking about what can be done. Delivery always takes patience and skill, but sometimes the problem is with the policy itself, which might be undeliverable. The Northern Ireland border since Brexit is one example, and there is a lack of real understanding of Northern Ireland across Whitehall generally, which means it is often left out of the discussion. It's not a fluke that the Academy's programme has matured so well. It's had years of effective consensus behind it. 
I often think that the very verbal nature of this country has something to do with this weakness. A facility with words is one of Britain's luminous strengths. You couldn't, reading the combined literary output of the cabinet and ministerial team last week, say that the country doesn't do a good resignation letter. <laughs> it's not, though, going to feature in the GDP statistics or the trade figures. But it sometimes seems that people think that words in government are a substitute for action. You couldn't make that confusion in business, where things work or they don't, customers are persuaded to stay or they go. It's part of the way that the disciplines of business don't always seem real to those in government, I have felt. And I came to this from a, a commercial background. I'm thinking of the way that business leaders were invited in repeatedly to explain what a no-deal Brexit would mean to them and then left hanging for months with no communication. As John Kingman has pointed out, it is hard to recruit scientists into government. He was speaking both, he was speaking at the Institute, he was speaking both as former second permanent secretary to the Treasury and as the first head of UK research and innovation. It's often the words people who go into government, the numbers people go elsewhere, for more money often, including to other countries. That may have contributed to things like the lack of understanding of the implications of Brexit and what the loss of 4% of GDP as a result, according to the OBR, really looks like. The final problem I'm going to mention is the lack of proper accountability of ministers, officials, or public bodies. The DVLA and the passport office seem detached from any sense of accountability to the ministries that supervise them. There's too often an attitude of, get this off my desk, and then I don't care. This takes advantage of the fact that citizens cannot quit their government the way they can switch mobile phone operator, for example. There is, too, a palpable defensiveness when things go wrong. Jeremy Hunt recorded many stories of this in his recent book on the NHS, which we were talking to him about last week. Feels a world away. The health workers he'd interviewed and he'd spoken to in his job as health secretary had unquestionably gone into their profession out of a desire to help people, he felt. But when something went wrong, their instinct was to cover it up. We get it, I have to say, quite a bit at the IFG. I'm thinking of recent requests from two departments to scrap the projects we had done on problems within those departments. Both had refused to talk to us formally, although officials did, and we're glad of that. They then asked at the highest level for the reports to be frozen, one until the end of the public inquiry into coronavirus, which may be many years. We did say no, adding that, of course, we would still represent their views if they chose to share them. Much of it, though, stems from lack of leadership right at the top. Those in Rishi Sunak's campaign team are asking why, having given the NHS lots more money, the Prime Minister's team did not stay on the case with meetings constantly asking where the 40 new hospitals he promised were, one has been built, and that is a good question. In a report just six weeks ago on the Afghan exit called Missing in Action, the Foreign Affairs Committee produced a more scathing verdict than any committee verdict I can remember and it blamed the Foreign Office, the National Security Advisor, and ministers for a fundamental lack of planning, grip, or leadership, which led to Britain abandoning its allies and damaging its interests. It said there was no clear line of command within the leadership of the government. And the result of all these problems is that it is much harder for governments to persuade voters of the need to make uncomfortable choices. The more that mistrust grows, the more our politics will be vulnerable to politicians who overpromise in search of wider coalitions among a sceptical population. So what should we do about all this? 
The Institute has lots of recommendations for such problems. Many are technical. Things like changing the rules of promotion in the civil service so that officials don't switch job as, as often as they do. More authority for the cabinet secretary to set, to set standards. But these don't answer all these points. And my recommendations here today go wider than those. The culture at the top of government does need to change, but exhortation is not enough. We need to formalize what has been informal. There need to be clear rules about the awarding of contracts and public appointments. There needs to be a truly independent ethics advisor with the ability to initiate investigations is a key IFG point. More powers for standard scrutiny in Parliament. And even more transparency about party funding and probably more restrictions. This is a staple of political science courses, but the outrage about it is well-founded and is growing. I find it hard to think, though, that you can transform these points without changes to the powers of Parliament and other checks on the power of an overweening Prime Minister. At the moment, as Jonathan Sumption, former Supreme Court judge, pointed out in an article yesterday, Parliament is the only real check to authoritarianism in the Prime Minister. We're working at the IFG on these questions in a review of the UK Constitution with the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge, and it couldn't be better timed. To my mind, that may include looking again at the voting system and at the legitimacy of the second chamber, again, staples of political science, but their time, the urgency for that has come. First past the post and the adversarial system it produces is running out of use, it seems to many people, in a big complex country of many different people where cross-party agreement on policies that persist for years is needed if the country is ever, for example, going to have an energy policy. Jonathan Sumption suggested, interestingly, that the Privy Council, which exercises the monarch's prerogative powers, should get more of a formal role to give independent advice on the limits to the Prime Minister's, Prime Minister's authority. And that is, I mean, among many ideas, worth exploring because these challenges to constitutional conventions are going to come up a lot more now that we are moving beyond the ability of convention alone to act as enough restraint. Of other remedies, more devolution, itself a desirable goal, would help a bit in providing a check on Westminster. But it's not a panacea unless it is itself subject to more accountability in turn. There's too little scrutiny of devolved administrations, which have only one chamber of parliament, and even less for local councils. The media is essential in all this. Local media, incidentally, is far weaker than it used to be. The BBC licence fee may be hard to defend in the future, but the Johnson government's pursuit of an upheaval in its fun financing and pursuit of the privatisation of Channel 4 without support even from Conservative MPs smacks of vindictiveness. One of the more disturbing reported comments by the Prime Minister is that he believed he could have survived if only Twitter had been shut down. I'd add a final point that is not directly about government but addresses some of the overfluent culture of words as sufficient that I've been describing. As it happens, it's one that David Sainsbury has devoted a lot of passion to, quite separately from his backing of the IFG, and that is the cause of technical, scientific, and indeed business education that needs to be part of the culture of this country. Boris Johnson has made the problems of government, and to some extent of the country, worse than they were. But he is a symptom, as Donald Trump was, and indeed may yet be again, of the difficulty in a modern country of uniting a lot of different people, of forging these huge political coalitions, and the temptation of doing it with promises 
that cannot be kept. He's illustrated how inadequate the conventions are for keeping a prime minister in line. I took this job as director of the Institute for Government because I'd seen as a foreign correspondent and editor how in many troubled countries there really is such a thing as wasting all the effort for improvement and all the money if there is no good government. My only reservation in accepting David Sainsbury's invitation to be the director was that I thought Britain's problems weren't as serious. I'm now convinced six years later that I was wrong. So these are my thoughts on what is most urgently needed with Britain's government in order to fix the problems that are wrong. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Um, I should have said at the start that if anybody has a question that they would like to put to Bronwyn, aside from those who are here in the room with us, uh, please do send them in via Slido with the hashtag Bronwyn Maddox. We're also tweeting this event online with the hashtag uh, IFG Maddox. Um, some people have already sent in questions, which is uh, useful. I wanted to kick off with, with one of my own Bronwyn, uh, which is also happens to have come in online which is, what do you wish you had known before you started your role as as IFG director? How interesting. Um, There are small things, like how big the cabinet office is, what on earth it does. Um, (laughs) Maybe I'll leave without entirely knowing that. But I think the biggest one is probably how much influence the government has over parliament in a way that really isn't obvious from the outside. You think you, you vote for your MP, that MP goes there, can do all kinds of things. And I had no sense of the uh, way the government can set the, the timetable and the sheer amount it does by secondary legislation. And that kind of thing really began to change my, my view of the powers of government. Even more than that, I don't think I had much sense of what it feels like to be a minister. The, uh, the pressure, the phenomenal pressure, the fact that it is almost impossible, even in theory, to do the di- a diary for uh, a minister for the week, that they're supposed to be in three different places at once, and what that feels like, trying to put all that together. And that... Um, that sense of the pressure, the talking very slightly too fast, the, um, the meetings very you know, distinctly too short, the constant running that is their, 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 their feeling of their time and their job, and the sheer uncertainty of it. I don't think I had felt that until I took this. And what are you most proud of in terms of what the IFG has achieved while you've been director? And... I think you've given us a sense of this from what you've said, but what do you feel is the most significant unfinished business that you're leaving for us? Oh, uh, these are the kind of score, <laughs> scorecard questions you're getting. Um, I'm hugely proud of everything we've done. We've got an absolutely terrific team, um, which I really um, will miss enormously. Um, I am hugely proud of the greater influence that we have got um, and the fact that we are clearer, I think, in saying what exactly it is that we think is wrong and should change than we were. Um, We put more numbers to things 
we have a terrific economics team who've come here not to do economics itself, but to work right across <coughs> our team, just making it more economically literate, making just putting that edge to our, our arguments of what it will cost everyone if government does things badly. And that's been hugely valuable. When I say influence, um, it's always hard to, um, uh, to know. Um, you, it's very hard to measure it. I mean, in terms of the crude numbers are, you know, 20 times as many people come and read our reports um, as they did 60 years ago. And that, that you know, that is, that is one proxy for it. But I think it's, it's really the, the sense that having gone public in that way and said many things public, it's increased our influence even with private conversations. And you know when you go in now to have a meeting that they will have read the report and will be alert. Um, if not concerned, to know what, what it is that we're going to conclude. And I think that's the right kind of, kind of influence. So they respect us for the rigour and the independence. Um, and more people talk to us. So there is, there is all that. We, ha we have achieved some particular things. I think we've hammered away at some of the um, mechanisms of government, like uh, just these professional functions, uh, getting, getting those um, better. Um, what haven't we done? Um, and what haven't... I could give you topics like local government, which isn't our mission, but you can feel the problems boiling up there. We've got very little traction with accountability and where we have funded away about it, and we have said it quietly as well. And you can see it more now as part of the conversation that people think that that's important, but the actual steps haven't, haven't changed. Um, there's always lots and lots and lots uh, you haven't done at any point. So I could, um, I could possibly stop there. Apart from w one thing, I think you know, we, have, we have looked a lot at performance and whether government can do things just that bit better, taking it on its own terms and saying, OK, that's your goal. How could you do it better? Are you doing it worse? What we haven't done is step back and say, could you do it completely differently um, in order to get the same goal? And people do throw those quite big questions at us, like about the, the health service. When Jeremy Corbyn uh, was having his heyday, what would it be to nationalize these things? Would that make everything you know, run better in some sense? What would the small state prescriptions of some of the conservative candidates at the moment, what would that do in terms of these, these goals? We're, we're not out to preach the goals. And we haven't, we haven't gone for the, those uh, big radical answers if you like, but um, I'll be over to you and the team, at least for the next the summer. So I'm just going to take one question that's come in online, and then I'm going to open it up to the room. So do be thinking of your questions in the, in the room. This is a question from your predecessor, Peter Riddle, <laughs> who says, congratulations on your tenure from your predecessor. From an IFG point of view, what three changes should a new prime minister introduce this autumn? Um, my question for him is, why isn't he here? Some of the things that we want changed are not down to the, the Prime Minister alone. They're down, to the, they're down to the head of the civil service. And it, 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 by far, the most important is to, get, to stop civil servants moving around as much to change the pay and promotion. The things the Prime Minister could do are about, and this is very much in IFG terms, is to... Um, increase the authority of the cabinet secretary to 
at least set standards for how other departments and, uh, work on some of the basic workings of government. Um, the IFG hasn't, I think, quite scooped up yet all the implications of Boris Johnson's um, premiership and exit. But I think you have to come back to some of these questions of conventions and standards and what are going to be the principles um, and the, the, the ways of keeping someone in, in line if they've decided that the uh, censure and opprobrium that come with breaking convention just don't matter to them. Thank you. I think there's a question here. Hi, Tony Travis from the LSE. I mean, at a risk of taking us into a question along the lines of, is Joe Root better than WG Grace? I mean, your, your tale of recent woe is pretty convincing, but how would we find a way of making a reasonable comparison between this recent period and, what say, Lloyd George? or Walpole. I mean, I know it's not easy to do, but I mean, so, but, but I mean, just to give us a sense of how we can find how bad this is, if it is bad, others may disagree, compared with patches that must have looked bad with people who must have looked similarly unusual in the past. It's a, re it's a really good question. Um, and I think of, of Bill Clinton's lament of, look, John, John F. Kennedy um, did all these things and, uh, and no one minded then. Um, I think, and we can have the debate about, about, about history and how you use it um, at some length if we want, but I think you do have to take it in the current context because um, of, of the implications of the behaviour now. And it is not that Boris Johnson is the only Prime Minister who have broken conventions at all, but it's what that means for the ability to check the Prime Minister um, now and, and uh, what that means for the parliamentary system. And I think the strain he's put on it, um, obviously there, there is no metric that, 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 that I can give you on it, but um, more serious than for quite a long time because of what it implies about the Constitution and the conventions on which it's based. And if you start taking away those conventions, you've got um, remarkably little there. We, we, we have to shore them up. There's another question here. Uh, John Kampfner, so congratulations, Bronwyn, on, on a really great speech. Um, two quick questions. The first, also with a historical bent, and that's the big beasts syndrome. In other words, is it just a, a lament of people of a certain age, such as myself, that um, when you look back at previous administrations of big prime ministers, Blair, Thatcher, and others, they were surrounded by significant people with significant hinterlands, particularly international hinterlands as well. I mean, it strikes me that there are no uh, international reference points for the vast majority of, of people in government and, and also in administration outside the Foreign Office, uh, save um, references to the United States and increasingly Australia. But anyway, so the first point is, is about the quality of people. And if this isn't just a lament, if there is uh, evidence for that, why is that? And, and my second point is, in your speech, you um, talk at length about systemic uh, improvements, checks and balances, um, accountability, transparency, and all the things that would make government work a lot better and would, would have prevented 
Johnson from behaving in, in this way and others too. But are there areas beyond systemic? In other words, do you detect sort of socio-cultural issues around a body politic that is thea <laughs> theatrical, that is about winging it, and not about good forensic, detailed analysis of administration and of policy? Thank you. Let me take the, 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 the second one first. I think there is a shift in culture. Um, is the need um, to appeal very directly uh, to people. Um, it, is, it also comes from the speed with which ministers themselves change jobs and the uncertainty they feel about their careers. And so there is this, this, this promising, uh, there is a lack of time often to get to grips with these, the details, whether it is a energy policy or how to build roads and where to build them or, or, or whatever. Um, it really does take time. I think, I think the culture has shifted. And on your first point about big beasts, I mean, this is impressionistic for everyone. It is very hard to know whether it's, it's, it's simply a, a sense of um, getting older and it was better back then. But I think, yes, political careers aren't what they were. Um, we all know the deterrence to going into politics now. And it means that um, people go into it with a very different set of not just skills, but motivations. They, they are bright, dedicated people. I've been tremendously impressed by many, many of the, the MPs I've met and the, the variety of reasons why they've gone into it. But it doesn't, and the length of political careers just doesn't foster that kind of, um, of knowledge. And hasn't encouraged them, at your point, I mean, to, for, uh, to pick up that kind of international knowledge. But you do find it in pockets of, of British public life where there is that continuity. Actually, you find it in the military who um, give themselves long courses on British military history, including the defeats, and, and, um, and have a better sense of the historical context and the international context of what they're doing often than, than many of the people you meet in a faster-changing sort of world. So that's the best. I, I share your impression, but it, I cannot for the life of me give you a metric that me measures the size of a big, a big beast. We're going to have I had the microphone. I apologise. My name is Simon MacDonald. It is indeed. I agonised before intervening last week, but so what? Uh, did I inadvertently make things worse for the blob? And is there anything that can be done to mitigate that? <laughs> Simon, forgive me, which blob? <laughs> the, yeah. No, I don't think you did. I think you showed um, a willingness to stand up and say, uh, this is not true as it happens. And here is the evidence of, of why that is the case. Um, can we go here next? And then there's a question over here. Thank you. Um, Will Moy from Full Fact. Uh, one of the differences between the age of Walpole on Lloyd George and now is the size of the government. It went from something like 20% of the economy to something like 40-50% of the economy, and is vastly more involved in people's lives. And yet very much of its understanding of what's going on in the world is just as limited as 50 years ago. 
we are astonishingly ignorant about basic things that the government is responsible for. The pandemic showed that, not even knowing how many people were in care homes and unable to do the pandemic response there. With a few happy examples, the ONS rapidly reacted during COVID. By and large, the ONS is just turning the wheel on stuff it's been doing for quite a while. The social science budget spent by ESRC is often spent in a very self-serving way by academics. IFG hasn't called this out in a thoroughgoing way, how shocking it is that government takes so much responsibility with so little understanding of what's going on and flies blind so much. Do you agree that it's time for a fundamental rethink of how we have informed government? Of, or do how, you think, of, how, we... of how we can have informed government? Or do you think we're basically nearly there and it just needs tweaking? So the IFG would not call out in any sense the size of government. That is a repeated political choice exercised essentially by the voters of this country. Would we call out the lack of uh, knowledge uh, displayed by any particular government? Certainly, yes. Not in the uh, marvellous micro detail which you and your team do um, every day, but the general problem of not knowing enough about these things when decisions are made, often. Uh, yes, we do call that, and, and I've spent a great deal of time. Also, on, on, on the parts of that that go better, and it's sometimes very unglamorous things uh, in policy making and in delivery that, that do go well. But we, we do, so on that bit, yes, I think we do spend quite a lot of time. Thanks for that, Bronwyn. Uh, you, you hinted in your remarks at a sort of British superiority culture. Uh, that we tend to think of ourselves as better than we are. Do we spend enough time looking across countries and comparing outcomes, uh, thinking, looking at what other countries do well, what they do badly? Uh, it strikes me that we're not comparative enough. And when we do compare ourselves, it tends to be with the United States, which isn't perhaps the best comparison. And just quickly on that United States comparison, you seem to intimate that had Boris Johnson called for an election, then there would have been real similarities with Donald Trump. But... I mean, it strikes me that, A, Johnson would have been acting within the rules, albeit putting Her Majesty in a difficult situation, or potentially so. And secondly, there was no threat of violence. So aren't the two situations very, very different? Thank you for that. Anna Menon, for the, for, for the record. That's right. Um, we can supply the gaps and all kinds of things. Um, I didn't quite put it as a superiority. Uh, and... Um, it seems to me more like a kind of dreamlike uh, confidence that Britain is really good at some things that, in fact, uh, it isn't. But it comes with sometimes a lack of curiosity or investigation into the basis for, for example, Germany and Japan's um, economic success and the, the hard yards both countries have, have, have done to get there. Um, no, it doesn't look internationally enough at all. And when it does, and I think you're absolutely right, looks at the, the, the wrong things or makes the wrong kind of comparison. And the US, I think you put your finger on something, is an endlessly tempting uh, example, whereas it is a very, very different country, organizes itself very differently, unites itself by um, ideals. Um, it is so different apart from the, 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 the seduction of having the same language that, that, that I... I share the thrust of your question that it should be banned from um, compar comparative studies with, with Britain. Um, the Trump thing, I wasn't saying it was exactly the same at all, just that um, 
I, I, I think if, if had Boris Johnson against the wishes, crucially against the wishes of his MPs, decided to try and have a general election appealing to the people, implying that the 14 million uh, voted for him in some sense could elect him directly. Yes, that is de deliberately undermining the um, public respect and understanding of the parliamentary system that we have. And it would put the monarch in a very difficult uh, position of whether or not to accept the dissolution uh, of parliament. We argued here in the Institute that, that she should not. Uh, I thought Jonathan Sumption's uh, arguments about uh, bolstering uh, the Privy Council uh, considerably, I would say it would have to be bolstered, but in order to, in order to give independent advice uh, to the monarch are, are interesting because I can see this kind of challenge uh, come up a lot. No, obviously not, um, not analogous, and no, there was no threat of violence, and no, there weren't people with horns on their head and so on. Um, but in terms of actually setting out to undermine, to reject uh, the, the electoral system and the, the parliamentary system that we have, um, confusing and destabilizing to the country. So to that extent, yes. Thank you. I'm going to take one more question from the room and one from online, and then we'll have to wrap up. So the lady here. Kishra Faulkner, Crossbench Peer in the House of Lords. Um, Answering John's question about a comparison with big beasts in the past versus now, I think it's fair to say people in this room accepted that after a couple of decades in the House of Lords, you find out the beasts aren't quite as big as you might have imagined they were looking in from the outside. I think it was ever, ever thus that talent is very variable in different governments. But I was intrigued by your comments about the second chamber and what to do about the second chamber and corruption, uh, the link to corruption there. And I wonder whether you think that a taking the power of patronage to appoint people to the House of Lords in some form by setting up a statutory commission to vet everyone who comes in and to have numbers to retain the balance because the Constitution, of course, requires a balance between the opposition and the government. Would that be a you know, workable otherwise it will continue to increase and increase with unsuitable people who have no interest in being there other than to use it as a dining club. My short answer would be yes. Uh, but um, I think, you, you know, the House of Lords does some excellent work in scrutiny to the extent it is allowed to do. And there are many tremendous people there doing it. But the basis of its, its structure is essentially impossible to defend, I, I think, these days. And um, I think people should look. There are many, many suggestions out there. You, you've made one, a, a more rigorous appointments uh, system. Others uh, say, look, scrap it. Let's go for a regional, um, regionally-based elected house. Um, I think it, it, it becomes, it, it's, a, it's a lost opportunity and becomes something even possibly more dangerous than that because of uh, the fall in reputation from the things we've been discussing, if it, if it just goes on like that. Uh, this is one of the things that the, um, our work with the Bennett Centre uh, in Cambridge is, is looking at. But I will have to leave that to my successors for the IFG answer. And there's just one final question I want to put you, to you that's come through from the many online, which is, 
Your talk and, and your comments have been rather depressing in some ways. Can you leave us with some light at the end of the tunnel? What, 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 what would you say that um, is, are, is, are the really positive points uh, about British government right now? I take a step aside from the British government and say that when we all look back 10, 20 years or whatever, I think we will say that we are living through an extraordinary revolution in science, in technology, in medicine, in actually creative arts, all the television we've been watching for all this time in, uh, in, in lockdown, and that this country is astoundingly good at it, and that that is supported uh, in some way by, um, by the government we, we have. Um, I think of the excitement, I mean, the politics and economics certainly at the moment can be really depressing, but if you take just a step into those other worlds, um, the sheer sense of excitement of what people are achieving. I'm thinking of one chap who's just kind of retiring out of the NHS, and he said to me, I just cannot believe that my luck in having seen these discoveries in things like diagnostics, in the ability to um, work out really quickly what's wrong with someone and tailor the medicine to them. I, I feel so lucky that after all these long decades, I'm suddenly living through this. I can think of the same kind of thing in, in actually in television, in people thinking, oh, we've lost the bounds of a film and suddenly these long series. In Britain, well, I was you know, taking pot shots at the overfluency, as it sometimes seems, of Britain, but the just incredible verbal creative gifts of, of, of this country as well. So there, there are extraordinary things, and I think we will look back at that, and this country still has the ability to, um, to generate these. But government is proving sticky at the moment, but you know it's not um, it's not as bad as some other countries, and we could certainly, if we look around the world, find worse. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure that counts as optimism. There's still plenty for us at the institute to work on. Before I ask you all in the room to join me in thanking Bronwyn for a really fantastic lecture and and all her very interesting um, answers to your questions, I just want to take this opportunity on behalf of all the staff of IFG and personally to thank you. Uh, for your leadership of the organisation. Um, we've all gained a great deal from working for you and uh, we've, you know, I think you've done a great deal for the Institute. So thanks, thanks for having me. <laughs>